Welcome to the NBA Deep Dives podcast. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson. This is part two of our Sweet 16 prospect preview. It was so nice we had to do it twice. So if you missed yesterday's episode, go back and check that out. We covered the first four matchups of the Sweet 16 in terms of the NBA prospects on those eight teams. And today we will cover the remaining eight teams. So I'm here, of course, with my Draft Deep Dives co-host, Tyler Metcalf. Tyler, how are you doing this fine Wednesday afternoon? We're back. I'm I'm, I'm oh, excited. Yeah. Uh, just w- one more sleep until more tournament basketball. Um, it snowed last night here in Minnesota. Just what's not to love? It's a it's a beautiful time of the year. So I'm, I'm excited to to kind of wrap up this Sweet 16 preview, and I'm very excited to see what the tournament games bring to us this weekend. Nothing quite like snow on the first day of spring, you know. <laughs> it, it's incredibly fitting. So it, it, yeah. the the move could not have gone better to plan. <laughs> Meanwhile, it is 80 degrees here in Sunday, sunny Sacramento. So um, boring. <laughs> that's certainly one word <laughs> for it. Anyway, speaking of California, the first matchup that we have to cover today includes one of the top teams in California, of course, Southern California. So not as good, but you know, that's sort of how it is. And in this one, we've got North Carolina versus UCLA. So let's actually start with some of the North Carolina prospects. And I know that you are someone who still was a little bit in on Caleb Love after last season's disaster of a year, but this year certainly gone better for him. What are your thoughts on him now as a prospect after this season at North Carolina and decent performances in the first couple of games for him and the team? Yeah, I so... In is such a relative term, especially with yeah. Caleb Love, because it seems like everyone in the world is completely out on him as an NBA guy. I'm not saying I would use draft capital on him this year, but I think he has shown meaningful steps in the right direction towards being a more productive NBA guard. Um, I think his decision-making and kind of playmaking is still pretty erratic, as is his ball security. But the scoring and shooting flashes and improvements are they feel really legitimate. And I I, I definitely if I I know he's not asking my opinion, but if I were advising him, I think another year at UNC would would be awesome for him. Just another step, another year of experience to slow the game down mentally and just become a more efficient all-around player, I think would do wonders for him. But the the bones of a high-level scoring guard are there. And we, we've kind of seen that really throughout the season and these last couple months where North Carolina has been playing some of their best, best basketball all season. So I'm not sure that anyone on this team is necessarily an NBA guy this year, but I definitely think Caleb Love has the best chances long-term. So given that you think that, what are your thoughts on Armando Bacot? Do you think he's a maybe 2023-2024 guy, or do you not sort of see him as an NBA player long-term? I, I'm struggling to see it. Um, I just, he feels like one of these big bruising big men who's going to be good for college um, and will have a, a productive college career, but just the, the translation to the next level, I don't see it. I don't see the offensive versatility necessarily. I don't see the defensive kind of mobility um, or consistency. So I, you know, Again, I think he he would be good going back for another year. Um, I'm I'm always a, a fan of of 
these players going back and improving their game and kind of expanding upon their skills instead of forcing their way to the NBA when they're not quite ready. So, you know, I'm not ruling anything out, but I, I think he has a long way to go still um, in terms of being NBA ready as a big man. So my thoughts on this are that they should both go back to school. I think that Caleb Love could boost himself into early second round consideration next year, maybe even late first round if he does well enough. My thoughts on this are generally that prior to two years ago, I would have said, if you think you're going to get drafted, go out, declare for the NBA draft. The risk of you getting injured and not getting drafted at all are too high, but with name and image licensing rights coming into effect, especially with a gigantic program like yeah. North Carolina, it makes a lot more sense, I think, than it used to to go back to school because now at least you're not playing for basically for free if you're playing for an NCAA program, you know, playing for free plus whatever they slip you under the table, which is really a brilliant system, you know, works great for everybody. But yeah, I think that going back to school is an easier decision to make for a player than it was even two years ago. And so I'm definitely more in on players going back to school than I used to be. But my general philosophy is if you're going to get drafted in the first round, you should declare unless you're a very special case like Jaden Ivey, who I thought was a much better shooter than he showed his freshman year. And he proved that as a sophomore and now is basically locked to go top four. So maybe Love or Baycott could improve their stock if they go back to school. Certainly, for the two of them, where the odds are that they wouldn't get drafted at all if they declared, I think it makes a lot more sense to go back to North Carolina, get a bunch of sponsorship deals from whatever local hamburger place there is in Durham, North Carolina, that's going to give you a bunch of money and just see what happens. Oh, important correction. Chapel Hill, Durham's Duke. You're, you're going to get the, the Tar Heels mad at you. Um, it's funny because my parents actually lived in Durham for a while and I was entirely doing that to troll. So oh, thank you well. for... Sorry. Okay. Well, <laughs> thank you for ruining my trip. The, 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 there's the, the joke that I stepped all over. Um, but just to, just to go back to kind of Caleb Love's improvement this year, because I, th I think when we look at Caleb Love, I'm not sure that we see much more than a scoring guard um, long term. Mm -hmm. At least I, I guess I don't. But uh, after last year, it's like, oh, God, he has a long way to go. And then this year, when we just kind of look at his advanced numbers or his points per possession numbers with his jumper, it's a really encouraging step that he took this year. And he's in the 81st percentile on all jump shots, 71st percentile on shots off the dribble, and 96th percentile shooting off the catch. Those are legitimate improvements on really high volume. The issue is once he gets to the rim. And... Yeah. I, I think his athleticism is pretty evident. I mean, he, he's got some some vertical pop to his game. I don't think he has the craft or the touch, though, quite yet. So that's where going back for another year and really honing that and improving. I and mean, he's in the 18th percentile on runners and 16th percentile in shots around the basket and non-post-up situations. So those are really bad numbers, especially compared to where his jumper is. So if he can, you know, bump those up into the even just the 40 or 50th percentile that will do wonders for his overall scoring production um, and kind of really give a better insight of who, of how he could translate as an NBA scoring guard. So let's flip over to the other side of this matchup. And there are three UCLA prospects that I wanted to talk about mm -hmm. here. And two of them, I know that we come very close to agreeing on. We both certainly last year, we're not in on the Johnny Juzang experience, and we both, I think, have 
sold less Peyton Watson stock than a number of people who are regarding his prospects. But interestingly enough, the third UCLA prospect that I want to discuss here might be the biggest disagreement between our big boards at the moment. And that's Jaime Jaquez Jr. So let's start with Watson and Juzang to get them out of the way. With Watson, his month and a half where he didn't score was certainly a problem, but the last month or so has been much better for him than the early portion of the year. And with him, it's interesting because I think he might get a first round promise for a team that buys into his potential, at which point if I were him, I would say, yeah, go for it. Take that first round promise. But if he does end up falling into the later portions of the second round, then I think it might be best for him to sort of return to school, presumably have a much larger role in next year's UCLA team and give himself a chance to prove that he's the lottery kind of talent that we thought he was coming into college. And with Juzang, I mean, we both believe that he probably should have gone out last year just because it's going to be hard to get on that kind of a heater ever again. And he has not gotten on that kind of heater so far this year, but who knows? UCLA still has at least one tournament game left. Maybe it happens again for Johnny Juzang, but I don't think either of us are that bought into what he can do at the NBA level. Yeah, I, I think Juzang really missed out on a huge opportunity last year um, to really capitalize on that incredible tournament run he had because the, some of the shots he was making were so impressive and so tough. The issue is that he's still taking those really tough shots, but they're not falling at a higher clip. The space creation isn't improved. There isn't a jump in passing. Um, The outside shooting improved on a percentage basis a little bit, but not to a point where it's like, okay, like now we're talking about a dead-eye shooter. He's pretty much the same player across the board his last year. He's just not as hot as he was in the tournament. So it wouldn't surprise me if he gets a summer league deal or something like that, but I, I don't think I would be using draft capital on him at this point. With Peyton Watson, I, I've never really jumped ship. I, I guess entering the season, I had him top five, and now I definitely don't. So in that sense, I did. But I'm seeing a lot of people have him undrafted, uh, and we've talked about should he go back, should he transfer. And I, at this point, the flashes that he's shown throughout the year, I think there's still enough given my preseason expectations and, you know, eval of him that I would still take him at the end of the first round and just develop the hell out of him. Um, and, you know, basically just throw him in the G League and let my developmental staff work on him, work on that shot, work on the consistency, build up that confidence and actually give him an opportunity that he hasn't been given at UCLA all season. And I think that will be the best route for him because UCLA has some top guys coming in next year. And I'm not sure that if he does go back, that he does see that significant jump in opportunity that we would hope he would get. So I, I think he's in a really tricky spot, but the the physical frame, the defense, the athleticism, and I, I think there's a lot more passing there than he's been allowed to show. So that combination of skills, I think, is still enough for me to take him in the first. Um, it's just a real shame that he hasn't been given an opportunity like at all this season to kind of build a rhythm or really show what he can do. Well, part of the reason that he hasn't been given as much opportunity is, as we've already talked about, Johnny Juzang takes a lot of the ball. But 
The other main UCLA guy who has the ball in his hands a lot is Jaime Jaquez Jr., who, again, I think we disagree about more than any other prospect in this draft. So I'm going to let you sort of run first on this, especially since I've already written about Jaime this year. Why do you think of him as someone you wouldn't take until last I checked you had him mid-second round? Yeah, yeah, in in that general range. I mean, just the way guys kind of move in that range, um, like 45 to 60. The maybe you know even as high as thirty five some days, uh, it's that God, that range of the draft is so gross this year. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it's tough because I, I definitely can see Hakas carving out an end of a rotation role as like an eighth or ninth man and getting ten to fifteen minutes a night. I think he does a lot of the dirty work that most players don't want to do, and those guys are always super valuable to a rotation. Um, I like his rebounding. I like that he fights in the post defensively. I think he can move his feet pretty well on the outside. um, I just, I struggle because, so when I look at his, you know, offensive profile, 18 and a half percent of his scoring or scoring possessions come in post-ups and 16 and a half percent of them come in the pick and roll as the ball handler. I don't see him getting any of those opportunities in the NBA because I don't see an NBA team looking at a six, seven small forward or, you know, maybe small ball four um, and wanting to post him up a ton. And I don't see him breaking that threshold as a consistent pick and roll ball handler. And then when I just think of how the, the the most likely situation of how an NBA team will use him is probably as a defense and rebounding guy, and then using basically just sticking him in the corner and dying. He's only in the 53rd percentile in spot of scoring, which, which isn't bad by any means, but if that's going to be your main thing, you want that to be a little higher. So I guess it's not necessarily fair for me to pin questionable coaching decisions on you know his, his nba evaluation but he, he just feels like in this weird kind of limbo for me where i'm not sure what he does exceptionally well that would make me want to spend a first round pick on him so i would spend a first round pick on mm-hmm. him and the way that i see it is i think once you get out of say the lottery and you're talking about for the most part teams that are drafting these players that are playoff caliber teams you know with Jaime Jaquez I think I buy into his defense a little bit more than you do and I think of him as someone who at a minimum can be a 10 to 15 minute a game rotation small ball four who plays good defense can punish mismatches in the post can punish mismatches if he has the ball in his hands and gets a pick I think that he can be a defensive stalwart as well. Someone who maybe you don't want to rely on him to guard the quickest of guards or guard seven footers, but someone who can switch two to four with decent efficacy, I think. And when you combine all the sort of connecting skills that he has, you know, he's a really good passer and certainly a well above passer if you're going to play him as a power forward. I think that at a minimum, he's someone who a playoff team can plug in pretty much right away as an eighth or ninth man. He's someone who certainly last year and this year has proven himself in high pressure situations and high pressure games. And I think that if you're picking at say 2021, somewhere in the early twenties, maybe even late teens, and you have a chance to take someone who 
you know can fill a lot of gaps on your squad. You know, someone who can be a solid defender, someone who can be a decent shooter, someone who can attack a mismatch and be a secondary playmaker. I just think that he fills a lot of roles so well, and I think I buy into his defense more than most people, that the combination of skills that he has can really help a team in that sort of eighth, ninth man role. And I think that he has a chance, not a large chance to be clear, but he has a chance to develop into like a fifth starter type. Basically you plug him in as your starting power forward, play him 25 minutes a game, have him mostly be a stretch four. And, you know, when there are bench lineups, have him be a secondary playmaker in those bench lineups. I think that the chance that he hits that potential upside as like a complementary starter type, in addition to the fact that I think his floor is very high, that sort of combination of things makes me think that if you're a team drafting in the back half of the first round, you should definitely take a look at him. Yeah, and I, I get that. I, I I don't know. I just struggle because I don't see Hakez having much more to his game than he's shown these last couple of years. And if that's the case, then if I'm picking in the 17 to 25 range, you know, I, I'd rather take a swing on Tari Eason or Kendall Brown or EJ Liddell or like Musa Diabate, Justin Lewis, Jake LaRavia, Wendell Moore, guys of that kind of similar mold who are good defenders, good athletes, can do a little bit of everything on offense. But I see all those guys having much more upside um, in the long run. Maybe, you know, now maybe they don't hit that, but. I see the floors as being similar. And if the, I think their upsides are that much higher than Hakez, I just really struggle to come around on taking him in the first, even though I, you know, I, I wouldn't bet against him making a rotation. I just, to, to be a starter in, in the NBA, like a legitimate long-term starter, it's so hard. And I just, I don't think that he has the upside and, you know, real two-way versatility to really break that threshold unless it is like a very specific situation. Whereas those guys I just listed off, I think have a have a bunch of different avenues to potentially carve a rollout in that realm. I totally get that. And a couple of the guys that you mentioned, I would definitely consider taking ahead of Hakez. But I think part of it also is, you know, the flip side of taking the developmental swing on these guys is given that you're a team drafting in that late half of the first round, odds are there aren't that many minutes to go around. So if it's really you're taking a swing on someone and hoping they develop, there's a decent chance that they never get the developmental minutes that they need. Whereas with Hakez, you're getting someone coming into the league who certainly I'm pretty confident that he has a floor of 10 to 15 minute a game role player who does a lot of different things for a team the odds of him failing completely, I think, are a lot lower than basically everybody that you listed. And so who knows? You know, if you're a playoff team that says we need an eighth or ninth man, we've got the top part of our rotation filled out and we don't have that many developmental resources, maybe it might be better for that team to actually take someone like Hawkes, who maybe he doesn't have as much of an upside. Maybe he's basically who he is already as a player, but who he is already as a player is someone that you know can help you rather than you know, drafting any number of guys that I could mention who teams took a swing on and they just completely whiffed. No, I, yeah, that's, that's fair. And I, I think we're on the same page of where we kind of view his floor and that's, you know, someone who's going to be in a rotation at, you know, what level is that? Um, who knows, but 
I, I also, it also feels like every buyout period or, you know, whatever teams find these guys for minimums on much more team friendly contracts and much more flexible contracts. And if you can find those guys, whether undrafted free agents or veteran minimum type guys, then I would be more tempted to do that than use a first round guarantee contract on someone who is not going to crack the top six of my rotation. So it just the, the value at that point for where I see his ceiling and the ultimate player that I think he could develop into. It's just a little rich for me, even though, you know, in a vacuum and we're just on the playground and we're like, all right, we're picking teams. Then, yeah, I I would want him on my team. But for that price at that value, when I could take guys who I think, you know, right away could make a similar impact, but then also have a longer term upside, it's tough for me to come around on him in the first round. Tory Craig definitely is an example That's of the use exactly case. Exactly who I was thinking of. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. The use case for what you're describing, which definitely makes a lot of sense. The flip side of that is just me thinking of teams that could have desperately used a wing or desperately used a stretch four for so long and just mm-hmm. cycled the bottom of the rotations and never got the guy. You know, yes, a first round pick salary is a lot more than you'd be paying for Tory Craig, say. But the flip side of that also is that you might pay a lot more for someone who is, you know, similar to what Jaquez can provide, maybe slightly bigger name. I mean, Mikhail Bridges is so much better of a defender that I don't think it's really fair to use him as an example. But, you know, that kind of archetype where if you can get like 80% of what Mikhail Bridges does from Jaime Jaquez and a little bit less defense, a little bit less shooting, but a little bit more playmaking. And you can get that for first round pick salary rather than the, I think, $18 million a year that Mikhail Bridges is getting right now and is still probably underpaid on that deal. You know, that's that's a win as well. But definitely the Tory Craig example is one to think about when considering Jaime Jaquez as a first round pick because, you know, he's someone who teams got for a minimum and multiple teams basically gave away for free. But the flip side is Tory Craig has also been an incredibly useful player. And if you get that kind of player and you pay him a little bit too much, maybe, but hope that he can develop into something more. I certainly think that's far from the worst kind of move you could make. And I think another area where we're kind of diverging on how we view him is it sounds like you are way more confident in his outside shooting than I am. And just over the last three years, his numbers are really weird, um, but I'm just going to run through them real quick. So uh, 2019-20 season, two, 2.6 three-point attempts per game, 31.3% and 76% from the line. The next year, 2.9 threes a game, 39.4%, but then 65.5% from the line. And then this season, 2.2 three-point attempts percentage plummets to 28.8%, but the free throw percentage jumps on higher volume to 77.3%. So that kind of combined with the spot up shooting numbers, I went through a little earlier, like the 50th percentile and then 40th percentile shooting off the catch. I, I just, I don't have a lot of faith that he can be that legitimate you know, stretch four um, or kind of off ball shooter. Uh, granted, we see guys kind of really mold and evolve their corner shooting game all the time. So maybe that happens, 
But then I think for him to really play that really specific role, I think the defense has to take a significant jump. Now, I, I think he's a good defender. I'm just not sure he's at the level that he would need to be to fully compensate if he's going to be this, you know, low 30% shooter. Yeah, I definitely do buy into his shooting more than low 30%. To be clear, I don't think of him as some elite marksman, but mm-hmm. I think he is much closer to 35% around league average and 75-ish percent free throw shooter rather than in the 60s. So I think that he's probably somewhere between where he was last year and where he was this year, you know, low to mid 30s on okay volume from range. But you're right in that he's not a serious knockdown shooter. You know, he's someone who there are concerns there. And I think really the difference between us is mainly that I buy into his defense and his shooting a lot Mm -hmm. more than you do. And therefore I think of him as, you know, a different caliber of player because of those two aspects of his game. But we have spent quite a while talking about (laughs) Jaime Jaquez. So let's move on to the next matchup we've got here, which is Purdue versus St. Peter's. And let's start on the St. Peter's side of this. What a run for the 15 seeded St. Peter's team who knocked out the number two seed Kentucky in the first round and then knocked out Murray State in the second round. Murray State being a decently popular pick Mm -hmm. to upset Kentucky in that round of 32. And instead, St. Peter's took care of both of those teams. Now, in terms of NBA prospects, uh, nope. uh, (laughs) I mean, maybe a team gives Casey and Defo a summer league invite. I I don't know. That's there really aren't any NBA players on this St. Peter's team. I'm just absolutely reaching for the best player on their team. But really with them, I think just appreciate how incredible this run has been from this 15th seed team. And I mean, if they can knock off Purdue, that's, you know, that's three giants that they've killed in this NCAA tournament. So fun team, fun to watch, easy to root for, but the NBA prospects, probably not. Yeah, I mean, for, for, from a draft standpoint, there, there's not much to really talk about with them. Um, but they've been a lot of fun. And Shaheen Holloway is probably going to get a pretty su- significant raise um, and a new job in the next couple of weeks here. And it hasn't felt super fluky. Like they, they play with a sense of toughness and execution that's really impressive. And it's not just one guy who's gotten hot out of nowhere and Obviously, a couple guys have gotten pretty hot, but they 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 actually like they run really impressive sets and have really good ball movement and player movement. So it, it's been a really fun story. I kind of expect it to end pretty soon, um, unfortunately for them. But they, they've been fun, and it's it's always good when we get you know at least one of these teams who starts really shaking up the the entire bracket. The opposite side of this matchup is not bereft of NBA prospects. So, yeah, we here are going to talk about two prospects who we have already talked about quite a bit on this podcast, mostly because we each have written about one of them. So Jaden Ivey, clear top four pick in this draft. On our last big board, I actually had him all the way up at number two, right behind Chet Holmgren. He is such a spectacular athlete who has done well for himself in this Purdue system, but will do infinitely better in a better spaced NBA offense. And 
Then Trevion Williams as well. I've said before on this podcast that I think he's not only one of the best passing big men in this class, but one of the best passers, period, in this class. His defense is, uh, I mean, you can't put him in a <laughs> switching system, but he's actually more effective around the rim than you would assume, given his lack of mobility. But put him in a switching system and he's going to get absolutely roasted. But I think that his incredible passing gifts and his ridiculous nose for the ball on rebounds makes him a first-round talent. Certainly, odds are good that he will be drafted this coming year. If not in the first round, then certainly early in the second. And then the third guy on this team who has some sort of NBA chance this year is Sasha Stefanovic, who is a pretty solid shooter, has helped them out on that front. And then... I guess as well, Zach Eady is maybe a prospect for this year, maybe a prospect for down the road. I think that he might be worth a late second round pick just because of how incredibly dominant he can be offensively given his size. But I think the defense is even more of a problem for him than it is for Travion Williams. And that makes me think that a team really shouldn't take him higher than like second round flyer status. Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of work in reverse order of the names you just went through. Um, Edie, I keep seeing mocked in the second. I don't get that at all. Um, I, I I do think he's much more than just this massive human being out there. Uh, I you know I, I think he has really good touch, scoring inside. Uh, the shot blocking's pretty legitimate, but outside the paint, you know, he just can't move his feet that well, which we. He's huge. You can't expect him to be super nimble. Um, But my bigger problem with him is that a lot of the time he plays like he's like 6'4 instead of 7'4. And in the post, he just doesn't impose his will as much as he should um, be able to. I think some of it is hesitancy for picking up fouls or flagrants when he pivots and his elbow inevitably hits the face of his defender who's a foot shorter than him. But just seeing him kind of evolve his post-up game... I think would be really important to him. And then just kind of even developing just a face-up jumper. It doesn't have to be a three by any means, but just like a 15-foot face-up when he is getting those offensive fouls called on him, it'd just be a useful counter because no one will be able to block him. Stefanovic, I think, is kind of sneaky fun. Um, I think he's a pretty lethal shooter. I don't think he gets drafted by any means, but it wouldn't surprise me if he gets a summer league contract and you know raises some eyebrows. Travion Williams, I I really struggle with because when things are clicking for him, he looks so good and the Mm -hmm. passing is absurd, but then some of his passes are just really poorly timed. And he, there will be games where he has a handful of turnovers on passes where it's like, why, why did you pass it like that? Like we all know you can, it doesn't mean you always should. So the highlights with him are so impressive, but I think he he knows how good of a passer he is, and that results in some unnecessary turnovers. That likely gets quelled a bit in the NBA with you know coaching and directives and a shorter leash and all that. Um, but I with this Purdue team, J- Jaden Ivey's the story, and mm-hmm. I mean, he's locked in at five for me. The top my top five is pretty set in stone at this point. Um, but I definitely get people who have him higher, and I. I don't have a ton of arguments against it. He's so much fun. The The athleticism is only going to be more valuable in a better spacing NBA. Uh, 
he's impossible to stop in transition or going to his right. His driving kicks are really impressive. Um, I, I, I just really like him as an off-ball scorer um, more than an on-ball guy. I know a lot of people want to make him a point guard, and I just don't think they need to. I, I'm fine with him getting a lot of on-ball reps at the next level, but as an off-ball scorer, you know, they, there's a lot to like. I mean, he's 85th percentile scoring off screens, uh, 63rd percentile shooting off the catch. So I think, and when, when you watch him run off screens, he runs really hard and really mm-hmm. fast off screens and really runs tightly and loses this guy a lot. So using him in that facet to get, to build up momentum and then get him downhill off of those, I think it would be really valuable. Um, my, my really only issue with him is just the inconsistencies on defense because he's far too good of an athlete to coast as much as he, as much as he does. The defense is definitely the biggest concern for me. I mean, he's someone who should be a lot better at screen navigation than he is. And he's someone who should get caught ball watching a lot less than he does. But the flip side of that, I mean, when you talk about his offense, last time we talked about it, I definitely seem to believe more in him as a future point guard than (laughs) you did. But I think the point that you brought up is really the key one here in that he should have some on-ball reps at the next level. It would be really huge for his development to have those on-ball reps at the next level. And I think it's the kind of thing where if you give him the ball a lot, his first two years in the league, it probably won't be pretty, but it'll be very easy to see whether he's a long-term point guard or a long-term off guard by the Mm -hmm. time he's gotten through those two years. And I think I just believe a little bit more in his ability to fill the sort of passing requirements of being a point guard His point of attack defense, I think, is also generally better than his off-ball defense, so might also be helpful to have him be on the primary point guard more often than not on the defensive end. So really, I think that I'm a little bit higher just because I believe more in his ability to be a future lead guard, but even if he doesn't end up being that kind of guard, I think we both agree that he would benefit by getting a lot of those opportunities with the ball in his hands, even if that doesn't end up being his long-term future. Yeah, and I, last time we talked about him, the the inevitable Zach Levine kind of situation and Devin mm-hmm. Booker role, early career role, where they get thrown in as this point guard, and the early results are pretty disastrous, but the long term results have been obvious. So, and if the team does that, that that's fine. I you know he'll 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 be trial by fire, and he'll learn and inevitably improve in some form or fashion. But I, I would just rather see him be drafted as the team's, you know, starting shooting guard. And then after that first substitution or so, whatever is made, then with that second unit, that's where he gets his on-ball reps. That's where the playmaking experience and stuff comes in. So I just, I, I think there are better ways to mold him into that than just being like, hey, you're our primary point guard now. Here you go. Um, because the, the it, it will be a rough road. It may work out in the long run. I, I think it could because, you know, he's an incredible player and I love everything he does to, you know, capitalize on early success paired with, you know, really long-term development. I think putting him at that two guard and then giving him those really primary creator opportunities with like the second and third units, I, that's where I, I think you you can kind of get a mix of both worlds. I think it'll really depend on what team he ends up going to, because 
if he ends up going to, I'm just going to throw out two examples, but if he ends up going to Detroit or Oklahoma City, I think clearly the role for him is defensive, point of attack guy, offensive, off guard, playing off of Josh Giddy or Cade Cunningham. Mm-hmm. If he goes to Orlando, and apologies in advance to Nathan Gribble for the semi-Cole Anthony slander, but if he goes to Orlando, he almost certainly is going to have the ball in his hands a lot more often than if he goes to Detroit or OKC or maybe even Houston, who... You know, I don't think of Jalen Green as a long-term point guard at all. I think Jaden Ivey is much better equipped to be a point guard than Jalen Green is. And I do not buy into the Kevin Porter Jr. point guard experience as much as some people do. So I think if he goes to Houston or Orlando, he probably has the ball in his hands a lot more than if he goes to, say, Detroit or Oklahoma City. And, you know, of those situations, I think that, oddly enough, Houston might actually be the best for him just because he gets to grow with a couple of young big men who I think could really help him out in Usman Garuba and future Hall of Famer opera in Shangun. But the other two fits with Detroit and OKC, I think would rely on him much more as a guy without the ball in his hands, you know, playing off Cade and Josh Giddy. And I think any of those situations could work out just because I believe in Jaden Ivey so much, but it is really going to depend a lot for him on what team he ends up going to and more than it will for certain other prospects who have easier games to sort of fit around other top players, I guess. Oh God. There's just so much positional overlap with in Houston with green and KPJ. I just, I I worry because I just think that team is in such a desperate need of like, of an actual point guard at this point that, I, I would really hope that he goes elsewhere. I even like a like say Indiana jumps up. I think pairing mm-hmm. him with Tyrese Halliburton would be a hell of a lot of fun. Um, why, why do you have to do that to me, man? Come well, on. so I, I was gonna, I was gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna follow this up with say Sacramento, who's currently sitting at the five pick. Say they jump to three in the lottery, and Chet and Jabari are off the board and it's between Jaden and Paolo. Um, which direction would you want them to go with? I mean, I'd prefer they go with Jaden Ivey just because I prefer Jaden Ivey as a prospect mostly, but I don't know. It's weird because Sacramento did get rid of a bit of the backcourt logjam by trading away Halliburton and Buddy Heald, but they still have De'Aaron Fox and Davion Mitchell and I don't know. The fits the fits a bit dicey between the three of them. The Kings could play some three guard lineups, but unfortunately, by far the best guard for a three guard lineup situation was Halliburton, and he's no longer a member of the Kings. So that's sort of what it is. I don't know. I guess the reason that I think that Houston might actually make sense is because I feel like that situation has the highest ceiling and the lowest floor for Ivy. Like I think that could be the worst possible situation for him, but. If he does end up developing really quickly as a playmaker, I think that could also be the best situation for him if he really does turn into a point guard long term. Yeah, and that that's that that would what is what would really skew my view on that is just how quickly does this playmaking come along? I, I think you have I, I think you think it will go a little quicker. Um, I think it's gonna be a more drawn out process, but and like the flashes on his driving kicks are definitely there. But just operating a half court offense, I, I think it's going to be a struggle because that that threshold 
to be that primary initiator on an NBA team in the starting lineup is so high, but the athleticism alone between him and Green in the backcourt would be an immense amount of fun. Let's move on to the next matchup between Kansas and Providence. And let's start on the Providence side, just because this is going to be a much shorter <laughs> discussion. They have maybe Nate Workler, maybe is a future late second round guy slash undrafted guy who shoots really well in summer league and earns himself a contract. But this Providence team is really not as much about star power as it is about, you know, playing together as a unit and playing good team basketball, which is good for long tournament runs, but is not as good for discussing future NBA prospects. Yeah, very different team to St. Peter's, but in terms of uh, draft situation, I, I think they're pretty similar. Um, Providence, I, I don't see them doing anything super well. Uh, they just kind of execute, especially late in games, and just kind of know how to win basketball. So from a college perspective, really good team. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they continue to make a deeper run, but from an NBA draft perspective, there, there's just not much there for me to get excited about. Well, it certainly would surprise me if they continue to make a deep run because I don't think they have much of a chance against the Kansas Jayhawks, who Fair. certainly are a different matter in terms of evaluating NBA prospects. And Christian Brown is someone who has proven himself as a possible second round guy, maybe even late first if the right team falls in love with him. And the episode before part one of our Sweet 16 prospect preview was our Oshaya Baji episode. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, Tyler and I have been big believers in Oshai for a very long time. And this season has really been the one where he's put everything together and really showcased all of the areas in which he's grown since his first year at Kansas. So Oshai is someone who is a clear lottery talent for me, who I've debated about as maybe even a top 10 guy in this draft. And I have been a big believer for a very long time and I am more bought in now than I've ever been before. And he is the leader of this Kansas team. And I think will be a huge reason why they will continue their tournament run after the Sweet 16 games. Yeah. And I, I have Ochai at uh, 10 right now. And we've waxed poetic about him for years now. I, I love him. Uh, really just quality two-way guy who I think will contribute from day one. So if you if I guess if you want to hear more in depth about Ochai, go back and listen to that Igbaji episode from the other week. But great shooter, great defender, great competitor. I, I, I don't think anyone's going to be, whoever drafts him will not be disappointed. Christian Braun, though, I think is a really fascinating kind of development as a player because as a freshman, he was this lethal shooter from outside, but that was kind of all he could do. And even though his shooting numbers have dropped off this year, he's really shown that he's a legitimate threat off the bounce. So teams really aggressively close out on him and try to run him off the line. But now he has the ability to attack the rim with floaters. He's a really good athlete and is not afraid to slam it on a guy. And he's really improved his passing ability too. So when he does attack the rim out of those closeouts and forces those defensive rotations, he's not only a legitimate scoring option at the rim, but he's also really improved that passing vision and accuracy to kick out and find shooters. So I, I, I do think he's a legitimate 
you know, top eight of a rotation guy in the NBA long-term. And then also two guys who I don't think will be relevant for this year's draft, but either next year or the year after are uh, Jalen Wilson, who's had a really good end to the season here and KJ Adams, who gets occasional minutes, but I I just really like the flashes he's shown. So long-term option there. And our final matchup, as of course everybody would have predicted heading into this, number 11 seeded Iowa State versus number 10 seeded Miami. And let's start with Iowa State. And the player to talk about there is, of course, the second best Tyrese H in the history of Iowa State basketball, namely Tyrese Hunter, who the round of 32 game for Iowa State was the Tyrese Hunter game. He absolutely exploded in that one. And He's someone who generally, I think, is considered more of a 2023 guy than a 2022 guy. But, I mean, he could be a lottery pick in 2023. That's the kind of talent that he has. And that was on display in their round of 32 game, which is why they're in the Sweet 16 in the first place. Yeah, and it's it's a lot of Davion Mitchell vibes with him. And his point of attack defense is really absurd. Just the way he moves his feet, the way he repositions his body to cut off the ball handler at any angle, um, really quick hands, really physical defender, despite not being the biggest guy, probably not a multi-positional defender in the NBA, but that, but he's going to really annoy point guards for quite some time. The offense is the biggest question mark at this point, because he, he started the season off really hot. He's been really, really strong in the tournament so far, but there's a big stretch in the middle of the season where this Iowa state team kind of fell off as a whole. Um, so if, if he can come back for another year, really show that consistency on offense, because I, I do think there is a lot that he showed this year to really get excited about. I, I definitely think first round lock for him next year is very realistic. And the final team to discuss the Miami hurricanes and the player I wanted to talk about here is Isaiah Wong, who was someone who I think we discussed a bit last year as a potential late second round guy. This year was a little bit of a drop off for him. His shooting numbers fell off. His free throw percentages even fell off. His scoring numbers fell a little bit. But I definitely think he's someone who's worth considering as a late second round flyer this year. I believe in his defensive potential. I believe that his shot is a lot better than he showed this year, much closer to the 35% last year than the 30% he showed this year. He's also dropped off in his free throw percentage, which doesn't make all that much sense to me. But his first two years in college, he was an 83% shooter and an 80% free throw shooter. And then this year, still at 76%. So clearly someone who has displayed touch from the free throw line. I think that he'll be a decent enough shooter that his defense and athleticism play at the next level. But I think he's probably a late second round flyer at best, but he's definitely someone I'd be interested in with a late second round flyer or at least a summer league kind of contract. Yeah, I'd definitely be intrigued by summer league. The The, the overall offensive drop off this year is just really concerning to me. And I, I wasn't super high on him last year. I was intrigued, but the athleticism and defense are kind of his calling cards at this point. The offensive drop off, I want, I really want to attribute it to him playing more of a two guard um, with the addition of Charlie Moore, who took over pretty much all of their point guard responsibilities. So 
I want to believe that Wong was kind of just struggling all season to adjust to that new role and played more off ball. And it just didn't quite click um, like they may have hoped, but to have a lead guard, well, I guess you wouldn't be a lead guard, but um, to have your point guard really struggle that much from shoot with shooting. It's just, I struggled to see him carving out much more than spot minutes, but if he does, it'll be because that shot does return to previous levels and he really really makes an impact with his defense and athleticism because both both those facets of his game are really impressive so i fully expect to see him in summer league i'm just not quite sure or at the point where i'd be like yeah let's use a second round pick on him i think that his defense is good enough to play at the nba level and if his shot Mm -hmm. goes from well below average back to average as it was last year then I think he's someone who could definitely carve out a decent career as like a fourth guard type. I think he has all the tools that he needs to be someone who can, maybe he's a bit of a defensive specialist who can shoot a bit rather than being someone with the ball in his hands a lot. But I think he can definitely fill that fourth guard role. And if he does go undrafted, I think he will be, well, that's assuming that he doesn't go back to school, but if he declares and goes undrafted, I think he's someone who will be one of the first undrafted free agents that teams might take a look at prior to summer league. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that because I, there's definitely enough there to like, and enough of a track record to be like, okay, this guy has something, you know, I'm not quite sure what it is right now because his role over the past two years is very varied pretty uh, drastically, but there's something there and a do you know if you're thinking about it as a team it's a do we need that and b can we properly harness it so i think at least a summer league invite um is in his future but it it, it also wouldn't surprise me if he goes in the second round just personally i'm not quite there all right anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap things up um, no, I'm just really excited for these games over the weekend. Uh, Friday, I should have a piece out on no ceilings. Um, I think I'm leaning towards Paulo's mid-range offense. So make sure to check that out. Definitely make sure to check that out. Tyler's Friday screeners are always a ton of fun and you always learn a lot if you read them. So be sure to read it as soon as you can. All right. He is Tyler Metcalf. You can find him on Twitter at T-M-E-T-C-A-L-F-1-1. And you can find his written work on No Ceilings NBA, as well as over at hashtag basketball and Canis Hoopas. Again, definitely be on the lookout for his Friday screener piece when that drops. You can find me on Twitter at N-B-A-J-O-H-N-S-O-N. And you can also find my written work on No Ceilings NBA and hashtag basketball, as well as over at Nets Republic. And I will have a piece going up Thursday morning. So tomorrow, by the time all of you are listening to this, about Musa Diabate of Michigan, who has as well had a great tournament run as we discussed in part one of this particular podcast. If you have been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review in whatever podcast player you might be using. That is always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback, you can feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening.